would you pray with me and then we're going to dive right into our text. So let's pray. Father, we uh, sit here this morning and we rejoice that we are in the kingdom of God. And we also recognize that it's not of our effort and not of our doing. But even as Jeff said, this is, this is a plan that was in your mind before the foundations of the world and executed beautifully in Jesus. So we're here by your grace and we remind ourselves of that. We also know, Lord, that there are others who need to be here this morning. There are others who need to be invited into your kingdom. And so, God, we don't want to not have that opportunity because we're out of room or because things are tight or whatever. Lord, give us courage to make room in our physical building and give us courage, Lord. And in some cases, it might even take more courage to make room in our lives for people that we don't yet know who don't yet know you. So may we not just be comfortable and at peace because we're safely home. May we always be hungry for those who don't yet know you and for their salvation. Uh, Lord, we pray now that as we close out the book of 1 Corinthians, that we would glean the last of the goodness that is there for the taking, that it would nourish our souls, that it would inspire us to be faithful children for you. So help us to finish well what's in front of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you've heard. That's it. We're on 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We've been in this book since the beginning of the school year. We've committed a lot of time to it. It's a tough book. It's pretty much a book of steady confrontation. So I know many of you are feeling quite slapped around for a while. And um, uh, so it's, in one hand, it's kind of nice to be able to uh, come to a close on it and, and then move to the next thing. I want to start with a quote by Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. And it says this. I have it in your notes, I believe. To be loved but not known, is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty love or life can throw at us. Uh, And this quote really came to mind for me as I was studying this chapter uh, this week, chapter 16. I think it's an excellent picture of unconditional, loyal love. Something that is so elusive in this life. Hard to come by. uh, Hard to keep intact. Uh, And again, the book is taken from Keller's, or the quote is taken from Keller's book on marriage. Uh, and, and as he kind of goes on to describe this kind of love that we would hope to cultivate in our marriages, he recognizes that ultimately this kind of love is really a love that simply mirrors God's love for us. It is unconditional and it is undeserved. And I think the reason this came to mind for me while I was reading this, this chapter and preparing for the last chapter here of Corinthians is really because of the tone of the Apostle Paul's closing remarks in this letter. They're loving, they're warm, they're caring, even after what has been a difficult letter. He's just finished a very confrontational and corrective letter to the Corinthians, and yet he closes with something that is gracious and loving and merciful in its tone. Uh, and so I want to quickly go through and just recap some of the things, some of the many corrections 
that the Corinthians and that we have heard throughout this letter. So let these just kind of wash back over you and remember the year of going through this book. First of all, he addressed quarrels within the church, uh, the disunity that had crept in. He addressed the arrogance in the sense of spiritual elitism that was kind of a muck in the church. He challenged favoritism of Christian leaders. Uh, Basically, the folks within the church had identified certain leaders and put them above others and had created what we might call cults of personality. You know, where they said, some follow Paul, I follow Cephas, and I follow uh, Apollos. And, And you can imagine the smugness of the last person who says, well, I follow Jesus. You know, and sort of that country club swagger there. Um, And so he confronted that. He rebuked them for allowing gross public sin to go on within their fellowship without either repentance or confrontation. He confronted their inability to settle disputes, having to go to the courts. He confronted sexual immorality, the immorality that was prevalent throughout the city, as we've highlighted, that had crept into the church. He confronted the overreaction of some in the church to this immorality, who then went on to say, therefore, maybe we should practice abstinence for all and forsake even marriage. And he corrected that overreaction. He confronted their use of liberty and conscience. He corrected them on how to worship responsibly in three different spheres. He corrected men and women for forsaking their proper gender roles within public worship and really shaming the Lord by doing that. He corrected their insensitivity with how they were handling the Lord's Supper. He corrected the abuses of the spiritual gifts And in the end, he reminded them of the centrality of the gospel creed, which we looked at at Easter, that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. And finally, as we looked at last week, he encouraged them not to abandon belief in a glorious bodily resurrection. Quite a letter, quite a host of issues that he has Worked through. And, you know, as Paul writes to various churches in the first century, there are some that are on his, you know, nice list, like, you know, maybe Ephesus and Thessalonica. And then there are some churches who are on his naughty list. Uh, uh, Galatia was certainly one of those, you know, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, he says. And Corinth was essentially on his naughty list as well. And so his correction here to Corinth is really kind of sweet in that it concludes with a loving, compassionate, caring tone. And Paul even makes what we might call some bold, or states some bold expectations that he has of this church that he's just slapped around for quite a while. And in all, I think what we learn, and this is the title on your handout this morning, I think one of the, the big points that we learn here is this. He closes in such a way that shows us grace and mercy In the midst of all of the messiness. And I think that's important for us as Christian leaders, as Christians, as a church fellowship. Because to be perfectly honest with you, we're all, different degrees, a mess. And we're all on our way by God's grace towards sanctification and glorification. But there's a lot of mess to trudge through on the way from here to there. And we need grace and mercy with one another in in that process. Um, So look for that theme as we go through here. The first point we see this. I think Paul shows us 
solidarity, the solidarity of the Christian community. Look with me in verse 1, chapter 16, verse 1. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. And so the first thing that we see here is, and this is a little bit surprising, but he really expects this church in Corinth to have concern and even generosity for the church in Jerusalem. And I think that's quite interesting. Again, now he's just smacked them around for like a long time in this letter here. And now he has the courage, if you want to call it that, to then extend his hand for a donation. Which is quite a thing. This is not usually the way we go about fundraising. You know, usually you start with buttering somebody up uh, before you ask. In actuality, the opening phrase here, and now about the collection, it really shows us that this is something that the Corinthians had asked Paul about. What are we to do with this? So he's responding to their question that has come to them. But we see that Paul didn't spare his correction throughout this letter, even though he was going to ask for this gift. Even though he was in fundraising mode, he didn't spare his correction. And, and having done all of this correction, neither did he fail to ask for the collection that was necessary for the struggling church in Jerusalem. Uh, and I think we learned something from this. One of the things that we as Christians learn is that we are a part of one universal church. You know, we, we meet in different locations, we have different names, we have maybe different personalities or expressions from church to church, but we really are part of one universal church, such that when one Christian community is hurting or struggling, then we're really struggling with them. And our hearts and our concern need to be with them, and when we can, we need to be able and willing to help each other. The collection that's being taken here, while it's not explicitly stated why or what the need was, Uh, Doing a little bit of of research, we can look in the book of Acts, especially chapter 11, and it seems that there is a serious famine going on, and it also seems that the persecution that even Paul himself may have uh, sort of initiated uh, were the kinds of things uh, that were causing the church to struggle severely. So we can understand why Paul now would be so sympathetic and so desirous of trying to help this church, having been a part of the problem for some years. But what we see here is the solidarity of the church. We're one church, one Christian church, and one cares for the other. We also learned some principles on giving here. And I I want to tell you, you know, Bethel Church, I think over the years, has been good about not making a big deal out of giving and money and these kinds of things, although sometimes to our fault. But when the scripture teaches about it, we're going to talk about it. And we find this here this morning, so we're going to dive right into it. So we learned some principles of giving from this particular passage. First of all, the first thing I would draw your attention to is Paul does not in this passage uh, command a tithe. He does not command a tithe, nor do we find that anywhere in the New Testament. And so you're going to find that as, at Bethel Church, we don't, we don't teach that a tithe is what is required of you. Uh, that's not what the New Testament teaches. Uh, now, when I say a tithe, some people you know, mean different things by that, but tithe technically means tenth. And some churches will say, if you come here, you must give a tenth. We even require that of you. Some churches will even have um, 
certain steps to make sure that that's the case. And if you're not giving a tenth, they'll come and let you know and sort of get in your face about it. Uh, I, again, I just, that would be convenient for uh, funding, let me tell you. But it's just not quite what I see in the New Testament, certainly not here. Tithe means tenth. What we find about the giving regular, here are the principles that we find in this particular passage. First of all, it was to be regular. It was to be regular. Even as uh, Jeff indicated just a second ago, you know, we want to be disciplined in our giving. Just as the Lord was strategic and purposeful in his choosing to save us and executing that, so we want to be purposeful in our giving. Uh, Now, some of you uh, get paid once a month. Some of you get paid twice a month. Some get paid weekly. Some of you are seasonal workers, and you don't know how much you earned that year until the year is done. And so I don't think there's any set way here. In other words, you know, he says once a week, but I, I don't think it has to be once a week. I think it has to be a regular pattern of an interval that sort of fits with how you yourself are compensated. In other words, as we are being compensated, we need to be releasing. We need to be steadily telling ourselves that this money ultimately is the Lord's and that we don't trust what we can earn. And we're constantly affirming and thanking God for his grace in our life by what we release to him. So it's not random. It's not when we happen to find ourselves with extra. Can you imagine? If we only gave when we found ourselves with some extra, uh, you know, it just wouldn't happen. We need to be disciplined in our giving, decided in advance, and then living our lives around our decision and our commitment. Secondly, we learn that it's to be proportional. So it's to be regular. That's sort of the how often. Secondly, it's proportional. So the question of how much. Uh, And to be honest, as I've already indicated, for some people, tithing is too much. Because they're, they're, or giving a tenth is too much. Because they're they're poor, their, their income status is too low. And if they gave that much, they would quite frankly put themselves in jeopardy. And then the church would have to come in and help them out. And so that doesn't really work. But on the other hand, for some, tithing or tenthing is way too little because God has given you way more than you need. And my encouragement to you is quite simply this. Start with a percentage that the Lord puts on your heart in proportion to your income. And I would say put some sideboards on it in terms of make sure that it has with it an element of faith where you're trusting God for what you can give. But on the other hand, the other sideboard is it's also what you can give cheerfully. For God loves a cheerful giver. It should be a sacrifice and one that you're happy to make. And so those are sort of two sideboards I would put on as you choose your proportion here. Uh, Pray and see if God doesn't allow you to even grow in your ability to give over the years. As you start, then see if you can mature in that. So regular, that's how often. Proportional, that's how much. And then the next one I think is who. Well, who is supposed to do this? And I think the Apostle Paul makes it pretty clear here. Everyone. He says each one. Each one. And I think um, in the church today, I think there's a lot of people who assume that it's everyone else that is to give. And, And there's lots of reasons people can sort of excuse maybe their own lack of giving. Well, I'm... I'm just single, I live on less, I, I, or I have a family, I have a bunch of kids, I have more 
that I need to give to. Well, I'm not working anymore. I'm on a fixed income. Well, I'm still working my way up. I'm not yet at the giving rate I want to be at. Or I'm in college. I, you know, any number of things. Let me tell you, there's no prime time for giving in your life. It's not there. It is a lie that says around the corner, I will hit that prime time where it will be easy and I will have the abundance to do so. We need to be disciplined to our giving and then disciplined in living around what we have chosen to do. That's the way it works. So everyone, and I think this also teaches us that giving is not just beneficial for the recipients, but it's truly beneficial for the giver. Truly beneficial for us as we let go of something. Um, This is good for our soul. It's a way of saying regularly that we do not trust in money. We trust in the Lord. Uh, Martin Luther has said this. This is maybe a bit of a controversial statement, so I'll throw it out there for your discussion. God put fingers on our hands for the money to slide through them so he can give us more. Whatever a person gives away, God will reimburse. Interesting. I'll just keep going. Uh, The last point I think we see here is, oops, I'm jumping ahead here uh, with respect to giving, is that it ought to be handled with care. It ought to be handled with care. Look at the accountability that's, that's surrounding this. Paul is careful not to uh, do anything in such a way that he could be incriminated for, properly, or for not handling the funds properly here. And so I just want to quickly describe our process of handling your contributions as they come in. Just Maybe you don't even know this or you've wondered. But here's what happens. As we take an offering, uh, the funds go out, to, go out in the back right here in the foyer. Two people are always with them. And they immediately put them in an envelope and, and seal it up. And that envelope immediately goes into a safe. And I'm not telling you where that is. (laughs) Immediately goes into a safe. And that safe cannot be opened except with two keys that different people have. And so following a Sunday, the two different people will come with their respective keys to open that safe and then unseal what was put in there. They will count it together, two people, and they will put the total in and then they will initial it together. This was the total. So that what is ultimately deposited must match that total. And those are just some of the things that we do by way of making sure that what is given in an offering is cared for properly. Uh, we also have a church membership here that determines the budget, which we're coming up to our annual meeting here at the end of this month, and our members of this church will determine the budget. And then every year we have two people who audit our books as well. So I just want to tell you that we, we do what we can. We do really every step that is reasonable that we can to, to honor your gifts and to care for them properly and to protect the integrity of the church. And so I have some questions for you by way of application. Do you honor the Lord with the first fruits of your income? Do you give something? Do you give regularly? Do you give in proper proportion to what he has given you? And I'll just tell you, that's a hard question to answer. Uh, that shouldn't be an easy yes, let me just say that. When you really think about what he has given us. Do you give not only for the good of others, but for the good and health of your own soul? Uh, some questions I would ask you to consider. Uh, the reality is we will either be generous towards ourselves, or we will be generous towards the Lord. And the direction of our generosity will absolutely affect our heart for the Lord or against him. Uh, Jesus says it very plainly. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so giving is one of those ways we can affect the direction and the the affection of our heart. 
It is a quick way to falling in love with the Lord and being committed to the growth of his kingdom or a way of becoming self-absorbed, materialistic, as we think of ways to regain a tight grip on our money. Randy Alcorn has said it this way in his little and very helpful book called The Treasure Principle. He says this, The money God entrusts to us here on earth is eternal investment capital. Every day is an opportunity to buy up more shares in his kingdom. I like that. And uh, it was, Jeff, we didn't plan this, but hearing about how community and Bethel has invested in your life and now your kids' lives and your whole family, we get a picture, we've seen a picture of that this morning of capital investment for the kingdom of God. Uh, Moving on here. So Paul expects their concern and generosity for the church of Jerusalem, and that informs us as well. And then he expects their hospitality and their help. This guy's bold, isn't he? He basically now hands to them his travel itinerary. If this were modern age, he would have said, you know, I'm forwarding you my Alaska Airlines, you know, flight itinerary. Here it is. This is kind of what he does. Verse 5. After I go through Macedonia, I'll come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while, or even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey. No one would say that in Alaska. I'm coming to spend the winter with you. So that, I can, that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door of effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. Interesting how he puts those two right together. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go uh, now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. That sounds like somebody visiting Alaska, right? Not yet. It's cold when it warms up. Uh, Again, I think this is somewhat counterintuitive here. After all of the correction that Paul has just thrown at the church of Corinth here, we might expect him to say, listen, I know this has been a hard letter. I know I came at you. I really got on you guys. This was tough, you know, and, and maybe things aren't easy between us. And so I tell you what, just to make it easier, I'm going to stay in a hotel, you know. But he says, get ready for me. I'm coming. I'm going to stay with you for like a while, maybe the whole winter, so that you can help me wherever I go beyond that. And in the meantime, Timothy's coming and you better take good care of him. I mean, it it seems maybe a little bit subtle, but he expects their hospitality. He expects it. He's not asking for it. It is an underlying expectation that he has for the church of God. He is expecting it. Even after all of the hard words that he has delivered to them. And to that I would say, friends, this tells us that we need to open our homes Open your homes. You need to have your brothers and sisters in Christ in your homes. You need to extend hospitality to them. You need to share what God has given to you. Your food, your time, your space, your very lives. Hospitality is the expectation of the Christian church. It's not an option. It's not something we request. 
it ought to be expected. We should be regularly in in one another's homes enjoying rich and meaningful community. And I would tell you this, one of the things that's going to make or break the church in the coming seasons ahead, I don't just mean Bethel, I mean the church universal, one of the things that's going to either make or break the church in the years to come is the extent to which we cultivate community and hospitality in our midst. If you come to Bethel Church just simply because you hope to hear a good message or because you want to sing some good music, I have news for you. You can go online and find a much better message. You can find much better music. Sorry, worship team, you guys were awesome this morning. <laughs> Especially Robin and Sarah, when you guys came in, the female vocals, I was just like, everybody be quiet. Let's just listen. Um, but you can go online and you can find something much better that's much easier. You can download it at your convenience. If all the church is doing is delivering content of that sort and that's all that you're hoping to take from it, we're in real trouble because there's better and easier mechanisms out there. We're called to much more. We are called to be the family of God together, exercising community and sharing hospitality and the intermingling of life together as we together learn to grow in the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, What is especially shameful, I think, and I take this from Dr. Rosario Butterfield's book, uh, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She says this about the church as one who was a, a practicing homosexual who had come to know Jesus and turned her life completely around. You guys have heard me talk about her story before. But she says this in criticism of the church. She says, what is unfortunate is that it is actually the LGBT community that is known for their hospitality and the church that is known for its coldness. If we're to have any authenticity in a community that needs to know Jesus, we'd better put our money where our mouth is and show hospitality to one another and to those who don't yet know the Lord. Paul also expects this church to continue to receive his instruction. You know, you might think that Paul has sort of thrown all of his punches by now, right? 16 chapters. Surely he's fatigued. Surely the punching is over. No. (laughs) He has quite a haymaker here in store for them in verse 13 and 14. He says this, Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Now you might read that and go, that sounds really delightful, Eric. Where's where's the punch? I was waiting for the punch and I didn't see it. Well, it's hiding, okay? Let me tell you this, it's hiding. The NIV has, unfortunately, in their translation of of some of the wording here, I think really emasculated, there's no other word for it, they have emasculated and neutered a particular word here in an attempt to remove sort of the unnecessary masculinity of the scriptures. You know, the NIV has done that in the TNIV, especially in the 2011 NIV. Anywhere they can, if the phrase is to be spoken to a whole group of people, they'll try to do that rather than to say men. It'll say men and women or whatever. And most of the time, it's very appropriate. But sometimes it overreaches. And in this case, it overreaches. Because the word here uh, that is translated be courageous or be brave in some of your translations is androzomahi, which sounds like a fish. It's not. Uh, androzomahi. And it, it is, in its original form, is absolutely infused with masculinity. In other words, if you have an ESV this morning, or a New American Standard, what does it say? Act like men. 
If we were to, if we were to, to, to make the same accurate translation in a dynamic equivalent such as the NIV, we might say something like this. Be a man. Man up. Cowboy up. Put on your big boy pants. Something of this nature. Be courageous is just a little too hallmark here. They're just taking all the guts right out of it. There is a sting and a force of Paul's exhortation. He's telling these guys, man up. And he means it. This is especially appropriate for the church at Corinth, considering some of the things that were happening there. Remember, the women in the church were forsaking some of their God-given gender roles in the household and the church and throwing off those culturally uh, acceptable forms of honoring to the leadership of the church and to the Lord. And they were dressing and acting like men. Meanwhile, the men were dressing and acting like women. And this is especially something that he's addressed in the church. The men were unfortunately allowing the culture around them and even their own women to run over them in the assembly. And I think Paul means what he says here. Man up. Now, unfortunately, when I say that, it's real easy for us even to hear that too far the other way. Because, unfortunately, in our culture, to man up or act like a man means to be aggressive, rough, harsh, uncaring. But notice this. Paul does not think it incompatible to say to them, man up, and almost in the next phrase to say, what? Do everything in love. Right adjacent to each other. I was really privileged as a young man to have um, a coach throughout high school. His name is Dale Hansen. He was my volleyball coach. I grew up in Southern California. We had men's volleyball. And yes, I was still manned up. It's okay. Don't worry about it. We were tough. We had a good team. This guy was out of the military. And I don't even know what branch he was serving in at the time because he just said, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. So we're like, all right. We don't want to die. And, um, but he led us through some of the most difficult practices that I had ever been in. I played lots of different sports, but practice for Dale Hansen, for Coach Hansen, was rough. Our bodies hurt. He transformed our bodies in practice and what we could perform on the court with all of the difficulty that he put us through. And I would also tell you this. I knew without a doubt that though this was the hardest coach I had ever had in my life, I knew without a doubt he loved me. Uh, when our class of guys, when we came through and we graduated, Uh, Dale Hansen, who had moved on our senior year, flew back from Kansas City to be at our graduation. Just to say, I love you guys. I I still remember that. It was important to me. This man, who was demanded much from me, loved me. And I knew it. It was right there, hand in hand. So I think about Paul's phrase here to man up. I think I'm going to adopt this tactic in my encouragement cards that I send out to you all. So it might sound something like this. Dear congregants, I know you've had a tough week. Man up. (laughs) With love, Pastor Eric. (laughs) So you're okay with that. That's good to know. All right. (laughs) So for all the hard things he's already said to them, he expects them to keep learning. He expects them even to continue to be attentive to his counsel and to biblical teaching and to obedience. High expectations he has. Finally, he also expects them to honor their leaders. Verse 15, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. 
I was glad when Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. And I would just tell you this. These guys are like almost never talked about in the scriptures. You know, who are these fellows? And I would just say they're, they're silent heroes. And I'll, I'll get to this in just a second here. It's easy to blow past their names, but these are real people and real stories. Okay? And there was this custom in the ancient world, in the Roman world especially, uh, known as patronage. You might be familiar with this. Uh, it really was nothing short of first century pyramid marketing. Okay? This is what it was. Uh, in this particular system, wealthy owners would be served by clients, educators, artisans, business persons, and whatever. And these clients would sort of promote the social status of this top-tier leader uh, with the expectation of some kind of remuneration, remuneration or some kind of award or some kickback or something like that. Another word for it today is Congress. This is sort of the picture, you know. This is what it looks like. And and this culture of patronage, unfortunately, was creeping into the church at Corinth, which is why at the very beginning in the first chapter, you see them saying, well, some of you say, I follow Paul, and some Apollos, and some say Cephas, and some say, I follow Jesus, you know. There was this, this series of patron or this culture of patronage that was beginning to creep into the church, and some wanted it there. But Stephanus this, this wealthy owner who was a former patron was one who had come to Paul with two of his household servants, Fortunatus and Achaeus. And these men, the three of them, devoted themselves to the care and the order of the church, such that they had come not to take, but to refresh Paul physically and relationally. In other words, the gospel had motivated Stephanus here to turn this system of patronage on its head and to invert it. And instead of seeing himself as the benefactor at the top of the pyramid, he was the one at the bottom of the pyramid giving everything he had to those who needed. He became the servant of all. That's how the gospel impacted this man's life. Uh, John Bunyan, a 17th century English lay pastor and author of the beloved Pilgrim's Progress, this was one of his favorite passages, this little innocuous verse. It impressed him. He says this, By this text, I was made to see that the Holy Ghost never intended that men who have gifts and abilities should bury them in the earth, but rather did command and stir up such to the exercise of their gift and also did commend, or commend those who were apt and ready to do so. He goes on to say, The scripture in these days did continually run in my mind to encourage me and strengthen me in my work for the Lord. Stephanus is a great hero for you, especially those of you who maybe are business owners or leaders or entrepreneurs who find yourselves with gifts that don't fit neatly into a Sunday morning worship service. But here is a man who took his station and his position in life and used it to advance the kingdom of God, becoming the servant of all. And Paul is telling us here that these kind of men should be honored honored they're not just silent servants not just quiet givers they're men's men worthy of honor we'll go to our last point here paul maintains his relational warmth verses 19 through 24 the churches in the province of asia send you greetings aquila and priscilla greet you warmly in the lord and so does the church that meets at their house all the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, not really going to touch on that this morning. Sorry to disappoint you. Uh, 
I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace, in the, Lord Je- the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. I would just say in the midst of all of the, the warmth of the greeting here that, uh, that Paul extends as he's concluding the letter, he also shows us something which is important to recognize, which is this. Ultimately, he does not trust or rest his hope upon what we construct here on earth, not even in the church itself. But Paul's ultimate joy and hope is found in what? The return of the Lord and the establishment of his kingdom. And there we see this Aramaic cry of the church in some of your translations. It's there in Aramaic, Maranatha. Or as it's translated for us, come Lord Jesus. And that is Paul's cry. And I just would tell you this, that I think this is a phrase that should be on our lips. It should be on our hearts. It should be in the front of our minds. Even as we go throughout our day, as we work, as we build, as we try to advance the kingdom of God, as we love and care for our families and all the things that we do, we should have at the front of our minds this continued hope. Come, Lord Jesus, because that's where things get set right. You know, we're just playing in the sandbox. But the Lord comes back to set his kingdom to rights, and we want that. What I hope that we pick up from this passage and and take away this morning, even as we close out the book, is, is this. That you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're in the middle of trudging through this mess of our own fallenness and recovery and restoration. And we got a long ways to go. And even as Paul sort of gives all of this correction and whatnot to the church, he still extends grace and mercy and love to those for whom he was confronting. And I hope that that is the kind of context in which we all mature in the Lord together as well. That as we're growing, that we would not become weary with one another, that we would not become discouraged in ourselves, but that we would have grace and mercy for each one in the midst of our messiness. So let me close again with the words of Tim Keller that we began with. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, that's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, And fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Father, we come to you now in gratitude and thanks and even blown away for your unconditional love, your unmerited love. We do not deserve it and yet you extend it monotonously and faithfully and we can count on it. Lord, may we as your ambassadors be so loving to one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ. As we grow and as we correct and as we mature in righteousness and godliness, uh, Lord, give us patience with one another as we go through these messy changes. May we be loving as you are loving. Thank you for this church of Corinth whose struggles are on display for us to see and whose corrections given by the Apostle Paul instruct us as well. May we learn from them. May we learn from Jesus, our Savior and Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.